0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello, and Happy New Year from the Living Leadership Podcast. In this week's episode, I'm delighted to share with you a talk from our archives. The following talk was recorded at our Pastoral Refreshment Conference in 2012, and is a talk given by the late Peter Maiden on Psalm 27. This is the first of three talks given at that conference that we'll be sharing across the next few months. Whilst we're talking about Pastoral Refreshment Conferences, I wanted to take this opportunity to invite you along to our PRC Conferences at the end of this month and the beginning of February, taking place in Hertfordshire and the Lake District. These are a wonderful chance to get away, to relax, and to be refreshed in God's word with other people in leadership positions around the country and spouses of those leaders as well. We'd warmly like to encourage you to come along and there are still some spaces available. Booking will close on the 11th of January for Hertfordshire and soon after for the Lake District. So do make sure to visit our website to find out more if you're interested. The website address you'll need is www.livingleadership.org forward slash P-R-C. That's P for pastoral, R for refreshment and C for conferences. If we can be of any more assistance to you in this year to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully, we would love to do so, so do get in contact with a member of our team. Anyway, enough from me, over to this week's episode, Psalm 27,
1: a talk by Peter Maiden. It's a real privilege to be here because to be speaking once a day for three days at a conference is almost a definition for me of pastoral refreshment. So um, I'm really looking forward to uh, a bit of refreshment as well during these three days. Maybe I should just tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I live in Carlisle, just eight miles south of the Scottish border, and that's the international headquarters these days of Operation Mobilisation. I have the privilege of being the international coordinator of OM until August next year. I can see the light at the end (laughs) of the tunnel. And uh, we have uh, just over 6,000 missionaries serving God in 112 nations around the world. And of course we have our our ships, or at least at this time one ship. Soon we trust to uh, have a second ship sailing again. The passion of our lives is to see the Church of Jesus Christ planted where it does not yet exist. So we tend to concentrate in the Muslim world, where we have about 1,100 long-term church planters working. We concentrate in the Hindu world, where we have about 3,000 people uh, planting the Church of Jesus Christ. And just in the last seven years, we've seen 3,000 churches established in the land of India, amongst the Dalit people. I think you're probably familiar with this. Amazing turning to God, which is taking place in India at the present time. Something we should really be, really be covering in prayer. Now we work in the Buddhist world, and also increasingly in Europe, which of course is fast becoming one of the major targets when it comes to world mission. Something that's taken, the change has taken place in my lifetime, from being the great sending continent of mission. Europe is now a continent needing uh, missionaries when I'm with the Korean church praying for the world what are they praying for? they're praying for Europe and they're praying that God will send Koreans as he's doing increasingly to the continent of Europe so that's my life Uh, I don't get to preach very much in the UK these days because I have to travel to all these countries uh, trying to encourage workers there I have been associated with the Keswick Convention for the last 10 years, so that's the one place in the UK uh, I preach regularly. I uh, took over from George Voer in the year 2003, uh, having worked with him as his associate for the previous 20 years. So if any of you want to know about working with extrovert leaders, (laughs) when you're an introvert yourself, then I'd love to have a discussion with you. It's been an interesting journey. I'm married. Uh, My wife is Wynne. We have three children and eight grandchildren. So they're the delight of our lives. Well, in these three sessions, I want to concentrate on the 27th Psalm. We'll use this as our, our base, and, and we'll move out from there to look at other scriptures as well. And particularly in this first session, we're going to look at a little bit of the life of Elijah. But I wonder how the last 12 months have been for you. Maybe some of you were here 12 months ago. You can look back to that occasion Or if you weren't, try and just think back the last 12 months of your life. How has it been? I'm sure many of you would describe the last 12 months in terms of struggle or battle. There have been wonderful times, I'm sure. As a child of God, you'll have had wonderful times. But for many, probably, including me, there will also have been times when you felt everything was coming apart and you probably wondered whether you were going to make it through I should just tell you about the last couple of years of my life I'm 63 years of age and the first 61 years of my life were idyllic in many ways born into a Christian home came to Christ early in life after a brief business career into Christian ministry Uh, in leadership in Christian ministry almost from day one, my children walk with Jesus, wonderful, 61 years. And for the last two years of my life, everything it seems has gone awry. Bereavement, chronic disease in my uh, family and in ministry, uh, things have been extremely difficult. Allegations against uh, Christian leaders Within our organization which I had to go and deal with and in dealing with those allegations the response towards me was very personal and very negative so about uh, nine months ago I got to the point and I don't know whether you've ever been at this point before I hope you never have and I hope you never will be but I got to the point it only lasted very briefly where I was actually afraid to pray Everything I was asking God for, it seemed as though he was giving me the very opposite of my requests. And for a time, maybe a few weeks, uh, I feared the place of prayer. These difficult times, which I suggest are part of the normal Christian life, and certainly part of the normal Christian ministry experience, are often made more difficult by false theologies, which lead to false expectations of Christian experience. Some, of course, would argue that the kind of struggle that I've just described to you will prove to you that all has not been well in my walk with God. David wrote the 27th Psalm, as Marcus has pointed out for us. We don't know the specific circumstances when he wrote, but it's very clear that David is under extreme pressure as he writes. It's clear that the problems of his life when he wrote this psalm were immense. Verse 2, the wicked advance against me to devour me. The commentators say the idea there is of a pack of hunting animals moving towards David with the intention to defile him. His reference in verse 1 to the Lord being the stronghold of his life shows that he felt his very life was in danger. He feels as though he's under siege from an army, verse 3. His enemies surround him, verse 6. It seems as though it may have been an occasion when he'd been forsaken by his friends, if you look at verse 9 and verse 10. But it's possible there was one thing David was struggling with more than anything else at this time. And in conversation with Christians in leadership, I find that Christian leaders often find this to be the most difficult. An alternative translation of verse 2 is the wicked advance against me to slander me. And in verse 12, you'll see that there were false witnesses rising up against David, spouting malicious accusations. I think we can read Psalms 26, 27, uh, and 28 as three Psalms which can be read together. And in Psalm 26, you can see David's stress on the blameless life he's been seeking to live. Verse 1, vindicate me, Lord, for I've led a blameless life. And in the next verse, he actually invites God to test, to examine his heart and mind. It's particularly rough, isn't it? When with all your heart, you're seeking to live right. You're really seeking to please God, and yet all you get is criticism and false allegations. Many Christian leaders have shared with me over the years, that this is the opposition that they find most difficult, most destructive in their ministry. So what were David's circumstances when he wrote this psalm? I said earlier, we can't be sure, but the best guess that he is that he was struggling with the situation described in one samuel twenty one and twenty two and you'll remember, I'm sure uh, the the circumstances described. In those two chapters, uh, they describe the agreement that Jonathan made with David, that he would find out from his dad, King Saul, uh, just how Saul felt towards David. And you'll remember that Jonathan got into an awful lot of trouble just for asking, but Saul made his position very clear, it couldn't be misunderstood, 1 Samuel 20, verse 31, send someone to bring David to me, for he must die. Difficult to, under- to misunderstand uh, that statement. And David flees, first to Nob, where the help, with the help of Ahimelech, the priest, uh, he, he, he gets some security for a brief time. But that uh, help which the priest gives, it eventually costs Ahimelech his life. Then he flees to Achish, king of Gath, where he has to feign insanity, remember, just to survive. A brief stop in the cave of Adullam before he gets some help from the king of Moab in Mizpah, And he requests that the king of Moab would allow his father and mother to stay there until, to use David's lovely words, until I learn what God will do for me. Now it's that request which for some interpreters suggests the link between this psalm and these incidents. In verse 10 he makes this statement Though my father and mothers forsake me the Lord will receive me. Certainly it wasn't the case of his parents forsaking him but the suggestion is that for David it might have felt like that as he left his parents behind. Well we can't be sure whether those were the exact circumstances. But we can be absolutely sure it was something like this when David wrote. He's facing constant opposition, false accusations against him, and he's suffering with extreme loneliness. With that background in your mind, as you turn to the psalm, the first thing that might strike you is that it seems to have two very distinct parts. They are so distinct that some suggest we've got two separate psalms here which someone has joined together, even separate authors of those two psalms. Other interpreters say that if it is the same psalm by the same author, then uh, they were written at different times. Verses 1 to 6 of the psalm, Seem to present the psalmist as full of confidence. He's at peace, even as the war is raging around him. Verses 7 to 12 are very different. David is far less jubilant. He even prays in verse 9 that the Lord, whom he has described in verse 1 as his salvation and the stronghold of his life, he now finds himself praying that the Lord will not turn him away or reject him. I find it quite fascinating, this desire to present this as two Psalms. And I ask myself, why? Is it not perfectly possible that it's all written by David and at much the same time? Is not this the reality? of spiritual experience. I go back to those false expectations of Christian experience, which can be so harmful, especially when you're going through times of difficulty, which you can trace back to false theologies. Is it not the case that we can be living by faith, living in integrity before God, and yet be on the mountaintop one moment and in the valley the next. The same day, even the same hour. Just turn for a moment, a few pages on, to Psalm 42. And again, uh, the writer, not David this time, is going through hard times. And as in uh, Psalm 27, the struggles produce this famous thirst for the presence of God, just like the deer... Canting for the water but then look at the, the roller coaster that follow those opening two verses look at verses three and four my tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long where is your God these things I remember as I pour out my soul and so on And then he seems to pull himself together in verse 5. Why are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. And then he slips back again. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore I will remember you. And then he seems to... uh, Uh, Pull himself together again in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? And so on. All I would suggest to you in a day of ministry uh, in David's life. So the question is, is David's faith any less real when he's struggling in the valley? Psalm 27, verses 7 to 12 than when he's soaring on the mountaintop, verses 1 to 6. Well, there's an interesting, and I find very encouraging, parallelism between the two sections of the psalm. One of the reasons for David's confidence in verses 1 to 6 is his memory of God's previous interventions in his life and ministry. You can see that in verse 2. But that same assurance is also evident in the second half of the psalm. Verse 9. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. What has clearly sustained him on the mountaintop, given him the confidence expressed in the opening verse, is his single-hearted seeking after God expressed in the fourth verse. One thing I asked from the Lord, this only do I seek, and so on. But you've got exactly the same echo of that in verse 8, where David responds to God, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Our faith can be just as real, just as God-honoring in the valley, as it is on the mountaintop. It's a false triumphalism which suggests that faith will always have us on the mountaintop. That's not the faith of true experience. Sadly, of course, we don't always respond with faith in the crisis. So for the rest of my time this evening, I want to do a comparison with you. I want to compare David's response in this period of crisis in his life to Elijah's response to the great crisis on Mount Carmel and the crisis with Jezebel uh, which followed. I want to do a a comparison between the two responses. Elijah, of course, had experienced a magnificent God-honoring victory against false gods on Mount Carmel you read about that in 1 Kings 18 and then you turn the page to chapter 19 and the contrast between the two chapters is as clear as these two sections in Psalm 27 but while the contrast is equally clear it's fundamentally different so let's read in 1 Kings 19 and we'll just take time to read the first four Verses 1 Kings 19 1 to 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them Elijah was afraid and ran for his life when he came to Beersheba in Judah he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness he came to a broom bush sat down under it and prayed that he might die I've had enough Lord he said take my life I'm no better than my ancestors. What a contrast to chapter 18. At the close of chapter 18, the power of the Lord comes upon Elijah, enabling him to run in front of Ahab's chariot. At the beginning of chapter 19, he's not running in front of a chariot, he's running for his life. In chapter 18, you see Elijah at his best. Chapter 19 at his worst. Chapter 18, he's strong in faith. He's the deliverer of his people. Chapter 19, filled with fear, the deserter of his nation. Chapter 18, he stands strong before 850 false prophets. Chapter 19, he's panic-stricken, running away from one woman, or of course, I admit, no ordinary woman. He literally and spiritually goes from the mountain top to the desert. He goes from crying out to God to vindicate his name, to glorify his name, he goes from that prayer to this suicidal prayer asking God to take away his life. The picture painted in chapter nineteen is of a man who's completely lost his spiritual equilibrium. Where does he want to? Be a Sheba. Of all places. This was the territory of Jehoshaphat. Whose son had married the daughter of Ahab. He dare not remain there. So he goes a day's journey into the desert. Alone. Utterly dejected. Clearly exhausted. Elijah collapses under a broom tree. What a contrast to David's response to difficulty. How can two leaders in the work of God respond to difficulty so differently? I just want to out for you three contrasts between their response to it. Number one, Elijah responded immediately. David had learned the secret to wait upon God. 1 Kings 19 verse 3, Elijah was afraid... And he ran through his life. No mention of, it, of him even pausing to ask God for help or for direction in the crisis. How does Psalm 27 end? Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. Now Elijah had a history of hearing the word of the Lord directing him. If you think back to the beginning of chapter 18, we read there, after a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. He'd been waiting, not for days, not for months, but for nearly three years for the Lord's instruction. But now, he's in a panic. Fear destroys faith. Self-preservation replaces the fulfilling of God's purposes as his priority in life. I suppose one lesson which God has been teaching me in these past two years is this waiting lesson. By nature, I am an activist. I like to fix things. And I'm expected in my ministry, in my leadership role, I'm expected to fix things for other people. I'm expected to be the calming influence when crisis hits Operation Mobilization. So when things go wrong in my family, as they have in the last couple of years, or in my ministry, as they have in the last couple of years, my immediate response is to rush out. And to fix it. It takes an awful long time. Or it has taken me an awful long time. To learn the lesson of waiting. I've blown it. A number of times. By responding too quickly. In the energy. And in the wisdom of the flesh. Rather than waiting. Upon God. And I have needed to hear. In these last two years. David's words. Wait for the Lord. Now let me say, in this context, I believe email can be a tremendous enemy. Many people expect, even seem to demand these days, an immediate response to their email or even to their text. And it's so easy, isn't it, to respond with an immediate but thoughtless, and probably prayerless response. Do you remember when you had to take out your fountain pen and a piece of paper? We've decided in OM that we will not deal with difficult or potentially divisive issues by email. However, it's one thing to make that decision, quite another to practice it. Email is so incredibly difficult to control Especially now with our smartphones on which we can receive and immediately send a responding email 24-7. Have you noticed that often if you don't make an immediate response to a difficult email, sometimes the sender will come back before you respond with a more thoughtful word. Or someone else will send a message which clarifies and simplifies the difficult issue. I do think we need to slow down. I do think we need to learn to wait. Now, of course, I know the dangers of procrastination. I know the dangers of inaction. But I think we see in Elijah's response the grave danger of action which hasn't been truly thought through And truly prayed through. So there's the first contrast. Elijah responded immediately. Without even bringing the matter to God. David had learned. To wait upon the Lord. Second uh, comparison. Elijah. Took his eyes off God. And he responded to the surrounding circumstances. David. Without minimizing the difficulties. Kept his focus firmly on the greatness of God. Now, Elijah had trusted God to deliver him from the anger of Ahab, but that same faith is not evident when it comes to Jezebel. God had miraculously fed him at the brook Cherith, sustained him at the home of the widow in Zarephath, strengthened him on Mount Carmel, but all of that is seemingly forgotten in the face of of Jezebel's threats. When I was uh, thinking about this uh, earlier this week, my mind jumped ahead, and I, I compared for a moment Elijah to Elisha. you remember that incident in Second Kings? It's, it's, it's actually quite an amusing scene. The Arameans are at war with Israel, and Elisha keeps telling the king of Israel where the Arameans have camped. And the king of Aram is convinced there must be a spy in the camp. So he summons his officers, which of you is on the side of the king of Israel? And they plead, of course, total innocence. And they say, it's all down to Elisha. And then you get that great phrase. Elisha the prophet tells the king the very words he speaks in his own bedroom. Must be hard to conduct a war in such circumstances. The king of Aram... Is not happy He surrounds Elisha's house with his army And Elisha's servant Is panic stricken Oh Lord What shall we do I'll listen to Elisha's response And compare it With Elijah's response To Jezebel Here's Elisha's response Don't be afraid Those who are with us Are more than those who are with them Physically, of course, they were completely on their own. But Elijah brought the living God, the Lord of the hosts of heaven. He brought the living God right into the center of the situation. Take time to read the rest of the chapter and see how God intervened in response to Elisha's faith. It's very interesting also to notice that Elisha is more concerned for his servant at this time, then he is concerned about the problems around him. His prayer in the middle of this crisis is actually for his servant. He prays that his servant might learn lessons from this situation. Oh Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. In the crisis, Elijah looked at the circumstances and ran for his life. David looked at the circumstances and brought God into those circumstances. If you just take a a moment uh, before you go to bed, just to read through Psalm 27, and notice how many times David refers to the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, over and over again, right through the Psalm. When the crisis comes, am I going to wait and bring God into the situation? Or more accurately, am I going to recognise as I wait... The presence of God, who is right at the center of every situation that I face. So Elijah responded immediately. David had learned to wait. Elijah looked at the circumstances and panicked. David recognized the Lord of the hosts was right there in the center of the situation. He was facing. Thirdly, as I've already mentioned, but I want to underline it, David recalled God's previous interventions in crisis times. Elijah seems to have completely failed to do so. The second verse of Psalm 27 can be interpreted as David reflecting back on divine, on, on past divine intervention. Well, it could be an expression of his assurance that God will intervene in a time of crisis. The authorised version puts it like this. When evildoers draw near against me to devour my flesh, my oppressors and my foes, they stumbled and fell. So if you take that rendering, it seems David is thinking back to previous interventions. And the language is very interesting. Evildoers doers planning to devour his flesh you recall Goliath's taunt to the young shepherd boy 1 Samuel 17 44 come here he said I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals I wonder if it was the memory of God's intervention as he faced Goliath that gave David such confidence in God To face this crisis. If it was, it's very interesting. Because what gave David confidence to approach Goliath? Well, remember his words to Saul in that same chapter. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David had a history. He had a history with God, a history of divine interventions in his life and work. Elijah, of course, also had a history. I've mentioned the brook, the widow's house, Mount Carmel, but he forgot it all. When he needed to remember it the most, he forgot it all. And it does happen, doesn't it? We're overwhelmed by the problem. It seems insurmountable. We can't get our minds off it. And soon it's pushing from our consciousness the memory of years of God's faithfulness. So not only do we get our eyes off the greatness of God and concentrate instead on the size of the problem, but our eyes become settled on that moment in time. All we can think about is the now and the huge problems associated with the now. Years of God's faithfulness are forgotten, and the certainty of our future hope finds no place in our thinking. So, two very different responses to the crisis. Two men who both struggled greatly in the crisis, but for David, it was the struggle of faith. And for Elijah, on this occasion the struggle of doubt and of fear. However, we can't close, it would be wrong to close, without recognising the magnificent response of mercy and patience from God towards Elijah. So let's look at the God whose arms we fall into, I fall into, when we fail. It will be material, familiar to many of you, But don't switch off, please. Let's just go over it again, even though you're familiar with it, for our encouragement. After Elijah's suicide prayer, take my life and no better than my ancestors, this is what we read. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Sleep. Who gives his beloved sleep? This was God's first gift to his weary servant. You've all had that experience, I'm sure, and I've had it regularly in the last two years. Of desperately needing sleep. And certainly wanting to sleep, and yet the issues you're struggling with just go round and round in your head. Sleep is a wonderful gift from God. In passing, I wonder how much physical uh, and emotional exhaustion was at the root of Elijah's failure. We know of course how closely the emotional and the spiritual and the physical are all linked and Elijah had every reason to be exhausted after that heavy day on Carmel and then imagine the emotional psychological challenge of moving from that great victory on the mountain to the stubborn highly threatening resistance of Jezebel The next morning, sleep, a wonderful gift from God. But I wonder if there was a particular reason for Elijah's excessive weariness. I'm sure we're all familiar with Elijah's words recorded in chapter 19 and verse 10. He says to God, I've been very zealous For the Lord Almighty, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. You see, Elijah had come to the view that everything depended on him. His activity. God, of course, would soon inform him how wrong he was. And it's a regular error in leaders certainly been a regular error in my leadership life. We begin to live as though we are indispensable. It all depends on us, so we get involved in absolutely everything, because without us it will fail, won't it? We don't take adequate holidays, because what will happen if we're not there? And it even can get to the ridiculous point that we don't take time to pray... To pray to the God whose work it is, and without whose power we know, at least theoretically, the work can never be done. But we don't take time, or adequate time, to pray to him, because we're so busy doing the work itself. God gives rest to a weary servant. Someone whom I'm sure he saw as honorably wounded in the battle. Then, you know, he wakes to the touch of an angel, a prepared meal, then more sleep, and he's woken to more food. Only then is he encouraged to continue his journey. And sure later in life, Elijah would testify, you know, it was when I was under the broom tree that I really understood the depths of God's covenant love for me. It wasn't when I was on the mountaintop, standing against those eight hundred and fifty prophets. It was when I was alone, soon after my suicide prayer, that I really entered into a depth of God's, or a depth of understanding, of God's love for me. You'll notice there's been no word of correction yet from God. The food and the sleep certainly seem to have dealt with his exhaustion. He now embarks on a 40-day trek to Horeb, the mountain of God. And of course, there was no place on earth, no place on earth, where the presence of God had been more clearly evident than this mountain. Here God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Here the law had been given when God had spoken out of the fire. Here Moses had communed with God for 40 days and forty nights. This was just the place for God to meet again with his dejected servant Elijah. So even though Elijah may have been moving away from where he should have been, God in his providence intervenes. My mind met immediately the Psalm 139 verse 9. If I rise on the wings of the dawn And settle on the far side of the sea. Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Let's return to Psalm 27. And in verse 8, we see in the middle of his struggles, God encourages David, seek my face. And David's response living in faith and obedience at this time is immediate. Thy face, Lord, I will seek. And it's clear that God's desire is to get Elijah to do exactly the same thing. He's been running away in fear and God will get Elijah once again to the place where he will seek his face and once again listen to his voice. Ian Proven feels there's a significance in the 40 days and 40 nights of the journey. Was Elijah to remember the 40 years of Israel's wanderings, as he moved towards Horeb did he think of the 40 days and nights Moses had spent there alone with God Proven puts it like this is Moses to be the servant or stubborn Israel when he gets to the mountain at the mountain he enters a cave I wonder if it was the same cleft in the rock where Moses was When the glory of God passed by. Elijah is finally alone with God. God has provided rest, food, and now a solitary place. Three things I think we should all think about if we ever find ourselves exhausted and dejected. And finally, the time has come for Elijah to think Of what he's done. He's now ready for God's gentle rebuke. Just a question. What are you doing here? Elijah. It's not a word of condemnation. It's a caring word. Meant to cause the hearer to examine his own life. And to get back on track. Elijah. I'd begun the reformation of my people. And I was using you as my servant. The first significant step had been taken. But... But what are you doing here, Elijah? And I wonder if this is why some are here for these three days. Maybe no huge crisis in your life or as there's been in mine. Thank God for that and enjoy it while it lasts. But just maybe a small, almost indiscernible drift from where you know you should be. And God says to us, this afternoon, just what he said to Elijah. What are you doing? Being where you are. I desire a face-to-face with you. And I'll go to any degree to get that face-to-face time with you. God says to us, I think this afternoon, as he says to David, seek my face. David answered far more readily, far more immediately than Elijah, at least on this occasion. Listen again to his response. And let's make this our response in these three days. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Let's just pray together. Father, thank you so much for this magnificent psalm Written from the reality of your servant's experience, of life, his experience with you. And Lord, we do pray that you'll help us to take the words of this psalm during these uh, three days together and just apply its truths to our own lives. Thank you, Lord, for what you've taught me in the furnace of the last couple of years of waiting upon you seeing more of your beauty, spending more time in your presence. Lord, I'm sorry that it's taken such difficulties to get me to the place where you've got me. Lord, we pray that all of us this afternoon and throughout these days together will cry out with David, your face, Lord, I will seek. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen
0: thank you for listening to the living leadership podcast we hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the lord if you're encouraged by today's episode consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us if you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today we'd love to hear from you You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders. Or you can visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.